Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome in everyone to the final hoon for 2023. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka with co-host Peter Bale. Great to see you, Peter. Bernard, you're looking terrific. I like those glasses. They make you look like a sexy geography teacher. Ah, that is something that I've never planned to be, but mm-hmm. uh, that I'll take it. I'll take whatever I can at the age of 57. Um, you know, this is this is all this is all good news, particularly with my slightly weird wacky here today um but it's a good it's, it's wacky for a good reason you've had been had a swim on the island right i have had swims yes um the last couple of days have been well, more than more than one swim no not today but yeah. um yeah but i'm very lucky i get to jump in the sea whenever i can and uh this is a lovely part of the world but um are you and the tide is what about nine o'clock at the moment and nine in the morning and nine in the evening, right? At the moment, yeah, I think. Yeah, no, it's um, it's all very convenient and and lovely. Sometimes it it's good to get out into nature and just enjoy oh, um, a nice a nice swim or a, or a walk or whatever. And sometimes you need to do that with all the news that's happening at the moment. That's right. That's right. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you want to leave your um, certainly I do. You leave your clothes in a little pile on the beach and walk in in a sort of rather Reggie Perrin way and not necessarily <laughs> not necessarily come back. Yes, Reginald Perrin. That was that was a great show, wasn't it, for all of those old people? Well, I suspect it wouldn't be if we saw it today. Oh, yeah. I suspect yeah. we might we, we might find mm. some whole No, 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 not cancelled. Just we might find that it's um a, a little clumsier than than we recall. Mm. Hey, but something good happened to me today, mm. which I was very impressed actually Having been quite angry, I'm very impressed with the person on the other side of the of this encounter because I I did my spin-off thing today, which is a kind of wrap of the year, mm. very much around Ukraine, the importance of Ukraine and the importance of the Israel-Gaza thing. And somebody messaged me on Twitter, not somebody I follow, but somebody I think you follow, actually, and they accused me of subtle anti-Semitism. So it's better to be accused, I guess, of subtle anti-Semitism uh, rather than just outright. How can anyone on Twitter accuse anyone of being subtle? I mean, that well, is that's, def- well, actually, no. So, it's, I thought so. It was a major advance, and I got. I asked them to point to explain a little bit about what they meant. I also did say that I thought it was defamatory, and suggested that the person might like to reconsider the comment. Um, <laughs> what I really wanted to do was go around and punch them on the nose, of course. But I, you know, of course, it, it, you, know, you can't have a journalist taking taking anybody for de- defamation. But the person deleted the um, ah. remarks, which I really appreciated. I mean, if you're going to be anti-Semitic, you might as well be subtle about it. But I, you know, the trouble is, if you say I'm not bloody anti-Semitic, you get into the, you know, some of my best friends are Jewish kind of questions, and then you just start mm. digging an even bigger hole. But I thought it was a really a really good thing to do that when you when you realise you've said something that's either upset people or that isn't really can't really be really backed up to just sort of it's one of the reasons i'm it's one of the reasons i use my own name on social media everywhere uh we're actually with one exception is because i think you're a little bit more more thoughtful about what you say under your own name the trouble is no one else is and um i'm i'm actually 2023 has been the year i've actually decided to finally pull the plug on Twitter slash X and um, speaking of speaking of um, speaking of Reggie Perrin, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you didn't get where you where you are today by actually did get where you are today by being on Twitter. Well, this is the sort of sad, scary thing is that I, I don't think the Kaka would have its subscription base that it does. No. without all of the work I did for ten years, and it is work now. I think about it, you know, um, getting news out there and doing my thing. But now it is such a mess, and it is such a time sink. And it is such a mess. I find it really unfortunate because it's still. I mean, I'm on Threads and I'm on Blue Sky and all the other things, but I just don't post to them anymore. Mm. Whereas, you know, my tribe, as it were, of journalists and journalisty people, people who used to have the blue ticks, not because they were particularly prestigious, but because they'd actually been identified as existing, um, <laughs> as is. Is is actually quite you know it's a bit I find it very sad actually because I, I used to spend an inordinate amount of time and now it really is an even noisier and less pleasant echo chamber than than it than it was before. 
Yeah. Uh, Peter Griffin, who does a great tech column for the listener and also one for Business Desk. He does a, um, mm. a good podcast for Business Desk. Did a good a good piece today saying that this was the year he really pulled back from social media. And he's not the only one. Um, this really is, I think that it's been a long yeah, time. Yeah, no, it's a bloody well, you know, my, 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 my one of my most hated words is well-being, uh, followed very closely by mental health. And, uh, and yeah. I suspect that it's very good for your mental health and for your well-being. Absolutely. Yeah, no, we should all get out and about, and yeah, I'm thinking. I'm thinking now that I'm because as you as you've urged me to do, I'm going to I'm going to try and step up and turbocharge my Substack. Um, although I got a lot of feedback about my Gaza reading list, which I need to redo. I thought I might use Hootsuite so that I can just spray everything out into the into the <laughs> into, into all all the social media channels that I'm on. You sound like a male cat. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Well, I. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, some, sometimes men of our age are a little bit like um, male cats in the sense just that they need to go all the time. But we could we could do another podcast about turning old, Bernard. Yeah, that's going to go really well, I think. No, People I would think... bloody love that. Well, I, we you already know that I want to do my uh, podcast about being a boomer in, in Hearn Bay and reviewing the hairdos and outfits in Andiamo, you know. Well, that's some sort of uh, meta uh, commentary, if you like, on the state of the country. Um, this week is going to be our last one for 2023. Yeah, well, you 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 brought it forward by a week, claiming to be knackered again. But uh, let me just give you some good feedback as well, because I went to a went to a really nice thing last night, which was uh, the Helen Clark Foundation. Oh, right. Very kindly, mm. uh, and I know you'd seen the chap Murray from the Helen Clark Foundation. Yeah, fe- yeah no, I'm, I'm interested interested in what they're up to. Yeah. Well, they very kindly invited me to a party at the or drinks party at uh, AUT in an absolutely gorgeous gallery in an AUT, which I hadn't been into before mm. actually. And several people said, "Oh, that Bernard Hickey. He's so tall. He's so handsome. He's so clever. On we love the hoon." And then oh, they, knew, nice. they yeah. and they knew an unconscionable amount about my life and you know what I do. Not quite to the point of the very kind people who offered to bring me food when I had COVID, but it was pretty <laughs> extraordinary, Bernard, that um, you're loved mm. out there. And there are a lot of people who who listen to the Hoon for a dose of good oh, sense, which you. you know they're certainly not going to get from me. <laughs> no, it's it's been a lifeline in a way for three years almost. We've been doing this, isn't it? And it started off as something we did in desperation, I suppose, during lockdown. Something we've continued on, and it's been a common theme throughout the Kaka's growth. And I uh, am really grateful that so many people still want to tune in and, and listen. And also, I'm I'm really grateful that we've continued to develop it and being able to develop it. Um, uh, Simon Josie, who is now uh, producing the version that goes out as a podcast, and mm. that's um, helped to grow the audience. Well, he's raised the standard of the jokes quite tremendously well, yes, actually, in, yes. our, in our pre-dialogue. Mm. Yeah. Mainly by cutting them out. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, and, I don't, I just, I, yeah, he also cuts out all mention of co-host and sometimes wants to cut out your entire uh, co- co-host. Uh, good. Uh, so we, we're really lucky. And also, of course, we've added to the, the lineup with Josie Pagani and for a longer period, Rob Patman, who are again back with us for the final show of the year, and Catherine Dyer as well, who's been ramping up our coverage of, um, of the climate. Yeah. We also did promise, we promised Robert a sort of Christmas party or a, or a public, you know, uh, hoon, and we still haven't done that. So we must we must do that before the end of Christmas 2024. Yeah, maybe we go down for the, the mid-year um, foreign policy school. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's right. We, which, which we even, well, we could go down for when he presents me with my doctorate, of course. Yeah. That yeah. would be good. With yeah. one of those those. Waterboard. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. been a few of those around town in the last uh, few few days. It's that time of year when people graduate and the likes. And yeah. um, I must say, it's it's quite a quite a moment to see all these proud parents um, doing their thing. It really is. Yeah. And let me just mention one. If if we don't get to it, there's a sort of freedom of speech story. I I posted in that spin-off thing, and I'm very happy to oh, well, find some way to share it. But Masha Gessen, who is a rem- remarkable New Yorker correspondent. Mm wrote several of the best books about Vladimir Putin, including Vladimir Putin, Man Without a Face, which is a fantastic book, uh, has, <laughs> has written a marvelous piece in The New Yorker this week about the Holocaust and about her memory of being brought up in the wake of the Holocaust and having an absence of all of her relatives in the Holocaust, but then said some very controversial things 
about Holocaust remembrance and the way it's remembered, particularly in Germany. And then the comparison, in a sense, she's made some very unflattering comparisons between Israel and previous incidences of people who uh, created ghettos and mm -hmm. uh, committed war crimes. And what was, you know, apart from the brilliance of the piece, which I recommend to anybody, she compared herself to Hannah Arendt, who was, as you will remember, the remarkable uh, philosopher mm. and journalist towards the end of the Second World War and the beginning of the uh, post-war period, who came up with the concept of uh, the banality of evil when she was mm. covering the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem. And that became a huge because she, you know, she's one of the people who was described as a as a self-hating Jew for essentially uh, rationalizing Eichmann's behavior. But ironically, uh, Mashagessen, a, a German organization today, uh, cancelled and rescinded an award that they had given to Mashagessen, which was given under the auspices of Hannah Arendt. So there's a, you know, there's a really interesting freedom of speech here, not in a Elon Musk anything goes freedom of speech thing, but I, I think there's some really interesting things to discuss around that. And maybe we should talk a little bit more about that when, when Josie comes on. Yeah, it's so hard to talk about these things in public now. You feel like whatever you do, you're, you're in trouble. Uh, well, we can just keep it between us three and the and the 114 people on yeah, the on, yeah. on the on the, on the pod. Hey, Catherine, is it is it a case hey. of good cop or bad cop? Oh, I think bad cop, but okay, <laughs> everybody's Go ahead. got yeah. their own opinion. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we, we now have some outcomes, some some words at least uh, from COP28 after 70,000 people went there and talked to each other and pointed at each other for oh, probably 10 days now. But uh, what what was the end result? Well, a whole lot of loopholes, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, it, I mean, I think Bill McKibben's comment that cops are a scorecard with not the game and the game itself, is what happens in between cops is probably quite relevant in, in this case. But as to whether or not we drive through those loopholes or not, but uh, my guess would be that we do, you know. So so they have, they took the specific words of phasing out fossil fuels out of the, the final document. And a lot of that was, you know, a lot of the debate um, that happened in the last few days, it was kind of the good guys versus the bad guys in terms of um, the umbrella group, um, which New Zealand and Australia and the US and UK are a part of. Oh, the irony that, that we're, we're saying everyone else should, phase down fossil fuels when we as a government have just announced we're going to start restart exploring for it. Exactly. Every one of those countries that I just mentioned is planning to expand their production of fossil gas. And so they needed an agreement that had loopholes in it that would allow them to do that. Um, and so while they were picturing themselves as the good guys fighting for stronger words in the agreement and a better outcome, they really got what they wanted in the end, which was enough loopholes that they could continue to expand their fossil fuel <laughs> production. Yeah. And you do you do wonder, there's so many words spoken well-meaning words, words that um, make people in theory look good or at least not bad. But often you wonder what they really think will happen in the end. And the best example of that is uh, New Zealand's position, which is from both sides of politics, to essentially say, uh, we're going to meet our Paris Agreement's uh, targets by buying up to $28 billion, $24 billion worth of credits offshore, uh, from markets that don't exist uh, and of credits that uh, may be of dodgy provenance and may not be accepted in the end. And with money that we haven't budgeted. Yeah, exactly. And it <laughs> seems that in the end, everyone's expecting that when we get to 2030, no one will have achieved anything and no one will be in a position to have a, have the high moral ground. Everyone will look at each other and go, ah, oh, well, you know, none of us could do it. We tried, yeah. Or we didn't try. Or we didn't. But exactly. It's quite interesting. I mean, it. it, it I, I. I was reading this morning, of course, about it, and it was apart. Apart from the fact that the, the type, what one might call the tiny island nations, were not even in the room when the gavel was, oh, was, was hit awful. on the on the closing of it. But there was a widespread agreement. I, you know, there. The, I noticed there's a chap here from you know, there's various environmental groups there said this is was as good as it was going to going to be, and at least we've got fossil fuels in there. The the emphasis on gas and also on the likelihood, which you've talked about before, about a, a very uh, significant breach of the 1.5 degrees of warming, but then a return to it, it's essentially saying we are, you know, we're going to shift to gas, big time. Um, we're going to acknowledge that fossil fuels are a problem, 
but we're going to have a huge blowout on the 1.5 target, but then somehow pull it back in again. There's a, there's a lot riding on this. Yeah, a lot of... A lot of narrative about carbon capture and storage and, and, you know, being able to pull that carbon dioxide back down out of the air. And there's not really a path for that. You know, like the International Energy Agency and its net zero scenarios uh, includes use of carbon capture and storage, but it's a really tiny amount and you still have to have a very steep decline in fossil fuels leading up to that. And and even they're saying at that higher level of usage of carbon capture and storage, the costs are something like a trillion dollars, you know, a a decade or whatever to keep doing it. And and it's far more expensive than just reducing fossil fuels based on, you know, all of the real world experience of of developing that technology to date. Particularly when the, the technology where we are improving performance really fast, so solar, uh, wind, uh, efficiency of all sorts of engines, electrification of lots of um, the economy from fossil fuels, where there is a demonstrable achievement of the technology. It's been in place for decades. We're now at the point of the adoption curve where we're getting really fast hockey stick style improvements, not only in efficiency but in costs. And to you know bet the farm or the planet on this idea that we're going to, you know, win it in the last five minutes with some magicked up invention that's going to develop incredibly quickly when, you know, we have a perfectly functioning way of getting there right now, which is solar and wind and, you know, moving from cars and uh, trucks to walking, cycling and electric and rail and where we can. It's very interesting, isn't it, Catherine, the, the extent to which African and South American, Latin American governments were very uh, adamant that they needed to exploit their own reserves, particularly of gas. And of course, we've got this weird situation where Venezuela, the largest oil producer in Southern Hemisphere and in um, certain South America, is now talking about invading or annexing Guyana to get after Guyana's oil reserves or energy, um, fossil fuel reserves. I, I also noticed there was a quote from John... I, I mean, I think they're reacting to the hypocrisy yeah. of of the developed countries who, on the one hand, are saying we need to reduce it and, on the other hand, are making very clear claims that they intend to keep exploiting it and, and to grow their exploitation of it. So, you know, to expect developing countries to forego that means of development while the rest of us continue to exploit it is, you know, that's not going to happen. Mm. And I also, it's worth uh, pointing to a, um, an excellent substack by a the, the Sky News in the UK economics editor, Ed Conway, uh, which looked at this issue of um, how to achieve um, carbon zero and achieving anything like 1.5. Essentially, it means uh, locking in relatively uh, low levels of economic development for people in um, emerging economies because there is a direct and clear connection between you know rising GDP per capita and emissions. And if you choose not to reduce the GDP per capita of the rich countries and you lock in the low uh, emissions and GDP per capita of the poor countries, you're essentially pulling up the ladder and saying, mm. we were here first, bugger off. Yeah, they're, and they're not stupid for saying we're not buying into that and, you know, if you're not coming to the party, then, you know, neither are we. Mm. The other thing that was really, that stood out, I think, is the amount of advocacy that comes from fossil fuel interests for carbon capture and storage mm. and for gas as a bridging fuel Kind of um, yeah, one of which is know. magical thinking, and the other one, which is entirely in their own interests. Yeah, um, and if you stripped that out of it, I think you'd probably have a very different narrative and a very different conversation happening at these things. But they are there, and you know, we get what we get as a result. It's interesting too that the fossil fuel industry have co-opted the tactics of big tobacco and been doing an awful lot of sponsorship of big media. So it was pretty. Frustrating, I have to say, as an FT subscriber, to be reading a story about COP28 and didn't see a big old partner ad from um, one of the big fuel companies talking lovingly about carbon capture and gas as a, a bridge fuel. And um, I, I think at some point there's some big media companies who have to think too about that. Just finally, Catherine, the, the big news here locally on the climate front came from the Climate Commission with its uh, its big recommendation to the government about the second budget um, for Mm. carbon. Uh, How did you see that announcement? 
Yeah, well, I think you can say that that you have a hell of a lot to recommend. There's 337 pages and 16 chapters of policy levers and recommendations across all sorts of domains. And I think the bottom line you can take out of that is that the government currently doesn't have the policies or enough policies in place to achieve the targets. And the policies that they do have in place aren't going to be sufficient in their scale to get anywhere near. So that, to me, is probably the bottom line. And the government has a year to respond to that and to come up with some new ideas, hopefully. And one of its first actions was to cancel a massive uh, uh, improvement in the uh, emissions efficiency of a major connection in our national infrastructure transport infrastructure, which is the Cook Strait, um, the cancellation of the two new ferries and of the new terminals means that the the great idea of putting a lot more of our freight on rail and shipping it between the islands on rail is gone. And um, this was going to reduce emissions by our, our freight network by a good 40% by 2030. And by removing this project, uh, that's another big blow for our emissions reduction targets. Uh, ironically, this was a, an idea that came out of New Zealand first in the first uh, term of the Labour government. Now they're back in Cabinet. That must have been a difficult rat for them to swallow in that Cabinet meeting on Monday um, because essentially uh, Winston Peters' ideas for the ferries were shoved back down into the drawer and nothing much is happening there. Catherine, very much, thank you very much for um, being on the show again. Lovely to have you this year and I hope you have a great summer and you manage to get some nice dry warm weather. What? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everybody. Nobody else is. I don't, see, I don't see why Catherine should have it all. Christ, she and I live quite close to each other. <laughs> Josie, it's lovely to see you and Robert, it's really good to see you. How are you, how are you getting on? When are, are you are you going out with all the students to get completely plastered since they've all graduated and everything now? Is that what you do? Well, I've got a, an appointment with a bell ringer next uh, the 20th of uh, December because one of our students oh. has just completed his PhD or is submitting it actually tomorrow. It's a tradition at Otago when a PhD student submits their PhD, they go and ring the uh, bell, ah. the university bell. So, yeah. I think, Peter, suggesting that Robert should go and get pissed with all his students is an HR case waiting to happen. I think so. Um, but, but also... <laughs> well, it's I've quite always tried to, to resist that, actually. <laughs> good, good, good. Um, but it's, it's quite hard to do now in Dunedin because I don't think there are any pubs left. Is that right? Uh, it's very hard to be anonymous in Dunedin. And uh, I think uh, ac- bow betide <laughs> academics who go and have a, a drink too many with their students. Especially ones that appear on television and radio and in, in New Zealand's most popular news podcast. Most loved news podcasters, put it that way. Yes. It's lovely to see you both. We've had a, a, a heck of a year of hoons. This is the last hoon for the year, and I'm really glad that you're able to make it. Um, Josie, just to start off with, uh, we're now a good two weeks into this new government, and there's even a poll out, the first poll, uh, which is, uh, I'm not sure it's particularly representative or worthy yet, but it's certainly something's going on. Um, what have and you Josie made? wrote the first herogram to the government as well. Oh, I think that's a bit strong. But anyway, Josie, yeah, stop being mean to Chrissy, <laughs> baby, on. I think it said. I don't think so. Oh, no, that was an interview I did on um, News Hub for their last show of the year. I didn't write anything. It was, oh, you still um, they said, said it, oh, how though. do you think he's going? And you said brilliantly, and I said, no, no, it? I didn't say. No, no, Peter, far, you obviously didn't Far watch better it. than any government said, that's ever been ever in a first week ever before. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's how I read it. Shush up. <laughs> No, what I said was uh, he's been behaving like an energizer bunny, um, you know, kind of rolling out the 100-day plan and the blah, blah, blah. And then I went on to say um, the problem they've got is that the content of it reveals that they're a mess of right-wing, um, you know, sort mm. of smorgasbord. You know, there's, sort of, there's a bit of populism in there. There's a bit of, mm. you know, safe sure managers is. of the yeah. economy in there. And then there's a bit of sort of libertarian stuff in there. So, yeah, hardly a Hero-gram. Yeah, well, can I also just apologise to our sponsor, Duracell? It's the Duracell bunny, not the Energizer bunny, but please go ahead. Oh, yeah. really? So, Josie, what do you think of the government's first couple of weeks thing? Um, I think it's just revealing that they haven't done, and I would say this was true of Labour when they came into government, they haven't done the, enough work in opposition and they both parties had enough time 
that they haven't done enough work in opposition to really work really? out what they want to do when they get into government. I do, and, and so therefore you do have this sort of, you know, 100-day um, uh, um, plan and the coalition agreement, which I th- we've talked about this, you know, it's this weird mixture of kind of very high-level bland things like reform the public sector so we get better public services, you know, who is possibly going mm. to disagree with that? Um, and then that really sort of sort of granular stuff of, you know, pseudoephedrine or banning, um, the, the, reversing <laughs> the smoke-free <laughs> legislation. Everyone went, what? Um, so I think it, what that reveals is a culture in the National Party in particular that they haven't, you know, this is the Tony Blair thing. Opposition is when you work out, you even draft the legislation you want to do. You work out like you would if you were going into a company, you know, not not I want to make it a business parallel, but you, you, you work out what you want to do and you're ready so that you hit the ground running. And it doesn't feel like they are. I wonder, though, if this is the first MMP coalition government where finally the inevitable outcome of how how MMP works is that you get a pick and mix government which picks bits and pieces from various manifestos in a way that the public weren't expecting. And that's one of the sort of interesting revelations this week was the scale of the protest against particularly the the smoke-free changes and also the vehemency and the activism that's coming out of Tao Māori against some of the you know, the combined actions of the, the new government. For the first time under MMP, we got a bunch of things that we weren't expecting and we didn't really know were coming, mm. which in previous governments, you know, you, you sort of got the mm. main party mm. and a few little addendums. But this time, it seems like the pick and mix, we, we got a mix we weren't, weren't expecting. Oh, pick and mix and a smorgasbord. Yum. Yes, yeah, so let's all throw up now. Um, yeah, the, but I, I, I think the interesting thing about that, though, Bernard, is that the, the, this recent poll you're talking about, which was a courier poll, showed that if you had an election today, it would be pretty much the same result, which mm. is really interesting. So National have dropped a little bit. Luxon's popularity, such as it was, has dropped a little bit, despite my hero gram, Peter, <laughs> has dropped a little bit. Um, oh, I've, and, I've and of course, you have, yes, yes. I've, I've been honestly. I'm from the left. I've been called a Tory for so long. It's yeah. You know, it, it's a trigger point. Um, and, and, but then you've got um, uh, Winston Peters and New Zealand First that have gone up slightly. So they've now taken over. Uh, they're now bigger than ACT. Um, so the point about that is that yes, we got a whole bunch of stuff that we weren't expecting. Um, not least of yeah, the pseudoephedrine and the smoke legislation and so on. But if there was an election today, you'd have the same result. Um, and, and with the protests, I mean, I, I, I did write about this um, last week that I think what you and we've talked about this, that I think Māori politics is fracturing. And I think what you're seeing is the likes of Shane Jones, um, Winston Peters, David Seymour, talking about... <laughs> um, <laughs> that's going to wind, that's going to trigger Peter. Um, is, is he the member for Nati Ipsum? As someone once famously said, yeah. <laughs> Probably. Um, that, that I think you're seeing that side of Māori politics go, actually, we believe in democracy and universal values. And so it's a kind of biculturalism mm. argument versus a sort of intersectionality argument from Te Pāti Māori, where you can never really be bicultural because, and you don't want to be, because to be bicultural means succeeding in the culture of the dominant uh, uh, colonial culture, Pākehā culture. So I think you're seeing this kind of political debate go on, which is really interesting. I don't think the way it's been presented in the media is a sort of pro-Māori, yeah. anti-Māori protest. It's not sophisticated or anti-Māori yet. Government. And it's not, yeah, and that's not what's happening. Josie, also, went, Robert's dying to come in, because, and he's, Robert, please, you, uh, Professor of International Affairs at Otago, please come in on the Te, te Māori questions. No, I was just going to say, <laughs> I, I agree what Josie's saying, but it's it's very interesting that you know in this this country in the last thirty years we've undergone a tremendous change or renaissance in Maori language and culture and also you know I've got three young daughters and uh, their circle of friends that visit our house and uh, they seem to they uh, how representative they are I don't know but my sense is that many young people irrespective of their politics whether they're national sympathisers or Labour sympathisers do see the current government as trying to turn the clock yeah. back. Mm. And that's that's quite an interesting perception. And uh, I, I think they are, I mean, yes, they are encountering some early pushback from people who may be expected to give it. 
The interesting thing is they may be getting a lot more pushback from people who they don't mm. expect to get it from. Yeah, it's ironic, isn't mm. it? Because uh, part of the part of the pushback on the sort of tokenistic changing of government department names, Waka Kutahi, NZTA, uh, from 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 National and and New Zealand First and Act was that this is tokenistic, mm-hmm. and then to come in and make that the first thing you do feels a bit tokenistic. <laughs> so it's extremely tokenistic. Mm. I, I was quite struck, mm. um, Josie and, and Robert, about. Uh, uh, um, Simon Wilson in the Herald did a, quite an interesting piece this week. I thought about asking why the government was pushing this so much. I think it really is ACT and New Zealand First that's pushing it rather than national to some extent. But why are they doing it? And is that because it is so much easier to have this kind of kerfuffle uh, and create a cultural war issue to distract from other things that are going on or, in fact, not going on? I think if you if you talk to some, and I, I mean, I sort of wrote about Shane Jones because I think he's a really interesting politician in the sense that he is so bicultural. I mean, he's he, so when he's talking about this stuff and debating with you know Debbie Naurewapaka on Breakfast TV, he's slipping in and out of Te Reo Māori. You know, he he's referencing the same references as her. So I, yeah, I don't think I think there's an element of that. Peter, in the, the sort of populist, um, you know, it's it's an easy win to go anti-co-governance, mm. anti-three waters. But I do think there's a genuine debate there amongst Māori about, you know, actually uh, the Western values of human rights and individual rights and, and, and free speech and so on belong to Māori too. And so I think that's a legitimate debate. Yeah, it was interesting for those people who who watch Parliament and the institution of Parliament with uh, things like uh, the maiden speeches from new MPs, the tree settlement bills, the way that uh, I think from memory there are now four uh, women in Parliament who have um, uh, facial tattoos, mokos. Um, you know, things are changing in a way that aren't going to go back. And if you've ever been in Parliament... For a a real moment, you know, when a massive piece of legislation passes or someone who's a, uh, you know, long-standing MP retires or there's some shocking event, often it is the public Mm. gallery singing in Māori, which Mm. completely transforms the mood of that place. And I don't think anyone on either side of Parliament would want that to go away, no, to no. want to somehow try to unravel that that new cultural part of our country. I was just thinking, Bernard, for some reason, apart from the, apart from the karakia that came after New Zealand voted for um, same-sex marriage, it just for some reason I just thought, where is Ross Morant when we need him in politics now? <laughs> but look, when I used to work for um, Mana Motahaki was my oh, wow. first job in politics and um, with Sandra Lee. And actually at the time, I remember we had a big hui up in um, Nafa and uh, Shane Jones came up as a guest, basically trying to work out whether he would join uh, Mana Motahaki or whether he'd join the Labour Party. But I think, you know, what I think we're seeing is actually... It feels very negative and divisive at the moment, but I think we're seeing um, a coming of age of exactly that stuff and that that self-determination that was in Mana Motahaki under Maturata, Sandra Lee, is coming to fruition. You know, I think we're going to end up in a place where that becomes a natural part of being in this country is that that devolution and self-determination of Māori is, is, is going to come to fruition even more. Uh, out of this hard birth. <laughs> and this is why I think uh, Christopher Luxon has missed a, uh, missed a, a sign from within his own party because there's a large part of national, which is conservative, rural, which is connected in a really strong way with um, a lot of the uh, values of iwi in rural areas. So often quite conservative. And, you know, you look at whanau order, which was a creation of Te Pāti Māori mm-hmm. with National uh, between 2009 and 2017. And one of the great sort of uh, ironies, of course, is that the the Māori language um, changes within the public service came because of a piece of legislation put through by National. Yes, of course. That's right. Uh, uh, and Muldoon actually, uh, you mm. know, kind of triggered the Kohanga Reo movement. But not only not only national um, acts fuckapapa. I mean, they need to actually remember their own political fuckapapa. They were a party that attracted the likes of Donna Awatiri, mm. uh, who mm. joined the Act Party because she believed in that 
self-determination. And it was interesting. I remember the debates we'd have in the alliance with Mana Mutahaki where Sandra Lee would stand up and go, you know, you guys are from the left, you're anti-privatisation and that's your kind of bottom line, your kind of ideology. For us, privatisation is is the gate, it's the ticket for us to have our, to have control mm. over our own services and our own resources. Josie, I was I was going to use your incredibly moderate approach to all of this as a segue to the Gaza question and wonder whether you might sort of be flown immediately to um, Jerusalem to help, or possibly Qatar. <laughs> to actually, right now, I would like to fl- fly you to Qatar. But um, uh, can I ask a, a question? Sounds, sounds like a great date, Peter. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, what do we this week? There was that interesting statement from the Waitangi Tribunal about the Napui potential Napui or Northland settlements and what it mm. might take. That seems like a potential flashpoint. Or another. I yeah. mean, what's going to happen? What, a lot of people last night at the Helen Clark thing I went to was that were asking what February the sixth on Waitangi is going to be like. Yeah, you're right. And Napuhi, I mean, you know, Chris Finlayson was interviewed, I think, saying how frustrated he is, you know, that he's been trying to get that that across the line for a long time. The other thing I think is happening in Māori politics too, and I read a Mason Jury essay from way back in the 90s where he talked about this, that you've got on the one hand treaty rights, which actually mm. ACT should get behind. It's a contractual property right issue mm. and it's about self-determination. And then you've got the um, social disparities amongst Māori and conflating those two is partly why we're in the problem we are now, that, that you know, you can argue that the not honouring the treaty led to social deprivation, but they actually require two different approaches from government. So I think what, the point I was making in my column is I think national uh, and this government have a potential, as you just said, Peter, to kind of understand where they've come from, and you said it, Bernard, understand where they've come from in their supporters and their uh, for, and the former government, and and kind of have a, a own an agenda that captures, you know, the 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 rights of the treaty as contractual rights, dealing mm. with disparities separately, um, and 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 having a kind of bicultural approach that that sort of picks up on where New Zealand First is coming from. And Robert, imagine Josie is in Qatar helping negotiate a settlement between uh, Israel and and Hamas. That looks further away. Any chance of that kind of thing looks further away. And Israel looks to me to be extraordinarily isolated this week and actually quite relishing it. What what are you thinking of the situation right now, Robert? Well, I think Mr. Netanyahu obviously wants the war to keep going because uh, I think for political reasons of political survival. Um, Interesting, there seems to be the tensions between Israel and the US seem to be surfacing. with the United States flatly telling Netanyahu he must change, Mr. Biden said that Mr. Netanyahu must change, and in particular, he cannot say no to the prospect of a Palestinian state. Yeah, but he has, and you know, oh, well, Mr. Netanyahu spent the last thirty years denying the prospect. Exactly, and I don't know whether you saw the Israeli ambassador to the UK said, "Absolutely not, this is never going to happen." You know, the the they're well, coming. The, the the people who have blocked it for so long are coming out of the woodwork. Very defiantly. And as you as you said, I mean, it's it, hard to imagine Netanyahu ever being cynical, but his appearance in front of a bunch of um, uh, Israeli troops today to say, you know, this is going on, you know, th- this is this this is not over. We're not going to finish, and we're going to go on regardless of the international community. Seemed to be a potentially very isolating position to be in. Well, he's, you know, there's no signs the Americans are going to cut off mm. financial support, and so. In a sense, there was an extraordinary moment last Friday when John Kirkby uh, appeared in Washington, you know, who regularly comments on security matters, and said, without any sense of irony, no one is doing more in the world to protect the Palestinian civilians than the United States. He didn't add, of course, that the United States is providing much of the military Mm. assistance from Mm. which American humanitarian aid is trying to ameliorate the consequences of. So... America does really find itself in a bind. And uh, the other thing here is the domestic political dimension of this for mm. Mr. Biden. And uh, there's, I was talking to an American friend recently who's based just outside Washington, and he said that he, he believes the Democrats, if anything, are under, underestimating uh, the abandoned Biden mm. movement that's mm. getting mm. underway in the, in the United States. This is not something to be underestimated because... A lot of, you know, America has quite a a large Muslim population and 
they're not necessarily pro-Palestinian per se, but they're just appalled by what they see mm. as America's one-eyed approach mm. to this problem. I was really struck, Robert, with, um, and, and also Biden showed his age yet again, it seemed to me, and his propensity to actually say the right thing and absolutely not mean it uh, or not intend to when he talked about indiscriminate bombing by Israel, which of course would be a, be a yeah. war crime on the very week when he's shipped, six, I think, 16,000 rounds of um of ammunition, you know, under an emergency grant to them, it's it's a fairly, it, it, you know, we're in a very febrile situation there where he, you know, his hug BB strategy has exploded, and I I had personally hoped that that might well be the way to to um you know that there would be courage on both sides, but he's being tremendously played. I think Netanyahu from the outset interpreted Biden's bear hug as weakness. Mm. He, I mean, mm. let's be quite clear, Netanyahu and his entourage privately regard Biden and the Democrats with mm. contempt. And, uh, you, you know, they're, they're pleased that the Biden administration's come in behind them. But I, I think Mr. Netanyahu believes he can have his cake and eat it. He can declare his independence, but continue to get American support because of the influence within American politics yeah. that groups like APEC and ever others have. And uh, he may well be right. Uh, so it's going to be an interesting month or so because the tail is really wagging the mm. dog at the moment. And the United States, for a global power, looks very, very weak in this situation. And seems to be coming isolated as well from some of its main partners. Uh, in, the, in the vote in the UN this week, we saw Australia and New Zealand both um, step away from the United States and call for an immediate ceasefire in, in Gaza, which was you know encouraging because it it uh, it ended some of the prevarication, and it's interesting to see Australia, which is taking a pretty yeah. pro US line on most things, um, stepped away, and it was good to see New Zealand do do that as well. Australia and Canada both moved to the New Zealand position. The New Zealand position, mm. which by the mm. way is still confusing, mm-hmm. uh, on the twenty seventh of October. We voted for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in the General Assembly, which is, of course, non-binding. And uh, by the 8th of December, Australia and Canada joined New Zealand Mm. in voting for another non-binding General Assembly resolution calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. So Australia and Canada have moved. And uh, the slight confusion around the New Zealand position because when apparently the national-led government is not calling for an unconditional uh, ceasefire, but it continues to vote for an immediate humanitarian truce. And America deciding to veto the whole thing, really just just put on a pedestal just how um, out of of line with global public opinion they are on this. You, you, you mentioned you mentioned in our pre-discussion, Josie, that you've got people. Your organisation has people in Gaza or around Gaza at the moment. Apart from your looming yeah. trip to Qatar to sort it all out, <laughs> what's your take on um, this right now? Yeah, so this is um, Child Funder in there. But I mean, there are there are other NGOs there, um, and they've got team. You know, they've got local staff on the ground who have. You know, basically, you've got um, uh, everybody having to shift all the time. Uh, every time there's a new location. That comes through, and they're in they're in a small strip that is about the size. I heard it described as about the size of Heathrow mm. Airport mm. Um, yeah. on the on the borders to um, uh, Egypt, where everyone's just crammed in there, and they and they're getting you know trying to get uh, food, water. There's no to- there's hardly any toilets. You know, mm. it's just hideous. Uh, there's there's a couple of things about that. I think. It's going to be interesting to see what happens in domestic politics in Israel because the longer this drags on in Israel, even though the anger and the hurt and the rawness from that attack is is still very um, apparent. But I think, you know, already you're seeing 80% of Israelis blame um, Netanyahu for mm. the attack, from for Hamas's attack. Uh, his mm. party, Likud, has dropped. They've lost 40% of their vote. Um, and there's calls for him to resign immediately. I mean, you could even see within weeks that he resigns and there's there's an election. I mean, uh, so that's that's one thing. The other thing is, uh, you know, I mean, the reason I think for just calling for an, a, um, a, a ceasefire with no conditions is that you know, what we need to call for is 
a, a peace plan rather than calling for peace because I, because we're never going to get a ceasefire yeah. without conditions from Israel. That's the problem. And it has to be, there has to be a change of leadership in Israel. There has to be a plan where you've got Egypt, Bahrain, um, UAE, Morocco. You've got Arab states who are friends to Israel, who Israel trusts more, um, or they've at least accepted Israel, to come together and make a plan really, really quickly about what an interim yeah. um, administration would look like and all of that. So until you until you have that as part of the call for the ceasefire, how can how can politically, how can Israel just suddenly stop and leave Hamas in place? I feel, jo Josie and, and Robert, as though we've lost any of that, any sense of that momentum. I was I was somewhat mm. Pollyanna-ish, as my daughter was accused me of being at the beginning, about the possibility of this leading to that kind of regional agreement. And my perception is that is that actually, if anything, at the moment Netanyahu is trying to provoke Hezbollah so that he can sort out have have a, mm. have a an even wider conflict. One interesting thing. Um Peter, that he uh, and you guys probably read this too. That you talked about the photo op that he does every week. He he puts on his flak jacket mm. and goes out and and gets a photo <laughs> with some soldiers. They've told him to bugger off and stop coming, because and now so now it's very orchestrated that there's handpicked a few so you know a few young soldiers who've told to say absolutely nothing. But the but the but the leadership of the reservists in particular in the IDF yeah. have said uh, we don't we don't want a photo. Absolutely, with you. go away. Yeah, I, I agree uh, what Joseph is saying. Uh, the, the, the problem is, though, there's another issue here. Ideally, it would be good to have a ceasefire with structured conditions which allow for a polit long-term political solution so we don't have this situation again. But the problem is that large numbers of Palestinians are dying, more than yeah. 200, and we, and we can't go on with this situation for yeah. too long. It's gone on too long. I, you know, if we're quibbling over conditions, how many th thousands of Palestinians? And what about their right mm. to self-defense? Yeah. I mean, they're dying in droves. And women and children, 70%. And as, as Josie just said, you, you just said from your organization, the feedback is horrific. The conditions yeah. on How long is the world going to watch this? So I actually pragmatically believe there does have to be an unconditional ceasefire very shortly because the alternatives are, are just... You know, do we really want to sit by and see people slaughtered on this scale? No, no, absolutely not. And I agree with you. My my issue is that I, calling for an unconditional ceasefire doesn't mean you get one. It was a bit like I remember the the debate we were having not not you and I, but we were having in Syria um, about you know Obama, the US should not intervene to stop chemical weapons being dropped on citizens by Assad. You know, even though he'd crossed a red line, and. And I remember then, you know, making the argument that, yeah, but the, the opposite of intervening isn't peace because the implication was we better not intervene because more people will die. And that's the problem, I think, Robert, is that calling for a ceasefire without any structure around a plan, we're, we're just not going to get it. Yeah, but, there's the, you, know, we, we, you know, politics is often the choice between the intolerable and the disagreeable. And, uh, you know, there's no, there's no soft option here. And uh, we have to work out quickly what mm. is, in the circumstances, the least worst option? And I personally believe there needs to be a signal to the, you know, Israel and the United States that this can't go on. This is not an option. You know, mm. um, the, the idea that you, we must meet these conditions to end this, well, we've had eight weeks of it, nine yeah. weeks actually, and uh, how many thousands have got to die before mm. people say enough is enough? Well, also it renders it renders the state or it renders the the habitation and living in Gaza impossible, and that is a war crime. Fifty five percent of residential buildings have been destroyed, yeah, and that is that is why mm. I, I mentioned before you. I Who's mentioned before you came this? in a remarkable piece by Masha Gessen in the New Yorker this week, which goes to this point and is and is the kind of thing that only someone with Masha Gessen's background might get away with. We're, we're just going to mm. Bernard wants to ask us some forecasts at the end of the year, but I want to. Um, Josie wanted to talk about uh, briefly about um, Glenis Kinnock uh, as the kind of leader oh, yes. we've lost and and perhaps don't have enough of. Yeah, I, it, it, 
I mean, she was, because I grew up in England and at that time, and I mean, you know, Neil Kinnock was, of course, standing uh, as the leader of the Labour. Don't roll your eyes, Peter. I know. It's, it's, I'm rolling <laughs> my Kinnock. eyes because because I was covering the buddy 19, what, 1992 <laughs> oh, elections as a fully grown up big, big reporter, and you were probably in a short skirt, as it were. Sorry. No. Uh, oh, God. <laughs> That's worse than the days yeah. in Qatar. Um, uh, but uh, were you? So were you covering it when he fell on? Yes. when he slipped yes. on the beach yes, when all yes. the media yes. were following him. The Labour Party conference in Brighton. Yeah. Yes, Glynis Kinnock sort of reaching, you know, pulling him up like the sort of you know wahini tour that she is. But it just made me think, looking back on on that time of those, um, they were an amazing political couple, Glynis and Neil Kinnock. And it was at the time of you remember Gorbachev and and Riza, who were also very powerful. Um, or Razor, sorry, I'm pronouncing it wrong, but it, they were a very powerful couple too. And, and Razor, you know, Glynis Kinnock at the time, you know, even Reagan and Nancy, you know, they, Nancy, they, these women were redefining what it is to be the sort of first lady mm. of a public politician. But then, of course, Glynis went on and stood for um, Labour as a European MP. Partly in order to get out of the House after after Neil, Neil lost in 1992, deservedly, but anyway. Yeah, although I think they were madly in love with each other. I mean, it's just, it seemed they're 56 years of marriage and mm-hmm. it just seemed like a, a, um, one, a, a very rare thing, a political marriage that lasts. In 1983, Labour came second. They got 27.4% of the popular vote and the Liberal Democrats got, uh, the, it was then the SPD, mm. Social Democrats, and the Liberals, they got uh, 254 Labour got over 200, I think it was 209 seats. Liberal Democrats, oh, the SPD, Liberals got 23. The reason that I remember this is because uh, I was then in a PhD student, uh, starting my PhD in the, that, that period, and uh, I just thought, how outrageous. Mm. It was just such an injustice, and yet Labour mm. were happy, completely yeah. comfortable with that. And I just, I, I'm so pleased that New Zealand does not have that first-past-the-post electoral system. Because while we have our grumbles about the coalition and performative politics and all the rest of it, I still think it's really refreshing when a government, by definition, has to have about 48% of the vote. Um, I have to one memory just quickly to share at that time in England. Um, it was actually it was late eighties, and I was very active in the Labour Party. Went to Blackpool Gardens, and um, it was one of Neil Kinnock's wonderful speeches where he's doing this sort of oratory of you know the the Labour Party fighting against the Liverpool Council, mm-hmm. the militants in the Liverpool Council, um, and and Ken Livingstone was in the, it was giving a speech afterwards, and I managed to set fire to a Steinway piano in the middle of Ken Livingstone's speech in Blackpool. Gardens. <laughs> I dropped a cigarette into the felts and set fire to a piano. Now, that's a good. That's a, that's a very. That's a, that's a that's a that's an excellent uh, an excellent reminiscence. And then we also remember that um, Joe Biden was caught plagiarizing a speech by by Neil Kinnock, which is a, a hard thing to remember. Now, Bernard, you wanted to uh, end the pod with with some forecasts. Well, I'm increasingly over forecasts because they're so hard, but I'm. Um, I am interested in in looking back at the year that we've just had and trying to think about what was the most important thing. And I'll start with mine so that you guys can think about yours because <laughs> <laughs> I haven't given you any warning. Um, the, th- the thing that I remember most about this year is every day getting up and having a look at the charts of the temperature the ice coverage, the sea temperature, and being utterly shocked and scared every day when I saw them. And then seeing these succession of extreme shocking events and then seeing it happen in our own country with uh, Gabrielle, which we're still dealing with the, mm. the uh, results of. And um, for me, it sort of, it all came together when I heard that the Met Office had done a review of its forecasts for the anniversary day uh, event in Auckland, the one where we had more rain in one day than we'd had in six months or whatever it is. And the the boffins came back and said, none of our modelling is anywhere near uh, um, accurate or had the ability to deal with the size of the this the swamping of the water and um 
it just seems to me 2023 has been the year where not, not so much the debate about climate change happened. It was the year that we broke the climate. And uh, we'll, we're going to spend the rest of our lives Living with and the on that happy note. Improve. Oh, bloody hell! <laughs> into, into the bathroom to get some razor blades to to, to do a live a live on air suicide. Yeah, carry on. No, no, no. <laughs> oh God! Anyway, on that cheery note, Robert. Okay, um, I, I think on reflection, it's difficult, obviously, question to answer, uh, but I think we have witnessed um, another landmark in what I see as the gradual decline of the United States in global politics. Mm. And I'm, I, I, get no, I get no satisfaction in saying this, uh, but I thought America had bounced back under Biden, particularly in supporting Ukraine against mm. the Russian invasion. I thought that America was beginning to reestablish itself globally. But I think America's response to the Gaza crisis indicates that America is if you like, experiencing a, a significant landmark in its global standing. And I don't think it'll be easy to recover. Mm. And, uh, I, I, you know, you only have to look at the voting figures in the UN for that. And uh, I don't think it's something that um, is going to be easily overcome. And uh, it's interesting because the United States is a global superpower. It's the most powerful country in the world. And yet at the moment, it found, finds itself in a situation where it defines its, inter, its interests in a very partisan and quite narrow way in a particular region. And uh, it, it's not really acting like a superpower. It's not acting like a magnanimous great power that is considering all its interests in a very important region. And um, increasingly, domestic politics in the United States seems to be in conflict with its international interests. So, uh, you know, that's what struck me. It mm. just strikes me as, as significant. It, it's not new. It's been in, it's been happening for some time. But I think that the, mm. the, the Hamas attack on Israel, which was horrendous and appalling, um, has in a sense, uh, I wouldn't say, um, it, it's, it, it's, it, I think, produced a response from the United States, uh, which... It has not done anything to really um, embellish its reputation internationally. And in a year's time, I really hope that we're not in a position talking about a change of change of government back to excuse a Trump. Excuse me, excuse me, don't preempt the bloody other people's predictions, Bernard. <laughs> Josie, I think it's your go. Oh, 2023 was rubbish. 2024 just sounds just dismal and <laughs> catastrophic from uh, and uh, and actually to pick up on what you're saying Robert I think that um, it feels a little bit and I hate to say this that we're we're in that kind of pre-world war one phase and I hope to God that that's not the case but when superpowers take a back seat and don't actually do the job of a superpower, which some on the left have called for America to stop doing, you know, forever. Now they've stopped doing it. You're right. They're far more protectionist with trade. They're more reluctant to intervene and, and prevent sort of humanitarian crises um, by Ukraine. Um, yeah, you end up with this sort of Kindleberger trap where there isn't, there's a sort of gap. So, yeah, I hope that that's not the case. But the way you guys are talking, it's like 2024 is, yeah, World War Three is coming. But um, on a more positive note, I was thinking, well, come on, let's 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 um, at least note the fact that Taiwan wasn't invaded. Um, the global economy hasn't collapsed post-COVID with high inflation. Actually, inflation levels globally have gone down, even if they're a bit slower to come down in New Zealand. Um, I think the voices from what is uh, stupidly called the global south, but, you know, from the Pacific, from developing countries, I, and I'm picking this up in, in the work that I do, far more assertive about business as usual and sort of aid, the beneficiary sort of welfare model of aid will not be sufficient. Um, they want changes, you know, they want new models. They want, they want um, a, in a sense, co-governance, devolution um, mm. and, and um, decision-making to be in the south. So those are, those are positive things that, yeah, I, I could go on. Mm. All right. So I'm, this is, with this, I'm going to say that I'm launching a new um, substack this year on the economy and on the global economy and on the New Zealand economy to compete with the kaka. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and it's going to be called the albatross. Oh, but uh, the, 
I've been thinking about this. I would say that Jerome Powell might be the person of the year rather than Taylor Swift this year because he's managed through careful stewardship of US interest rates to avoid a US recession. Joe Biden is going to go into a booming economy in the first half of 2024 in the United States. Either that or retirement home. Or possibly Mm. both, and hand it all over to Donald Trump in in November 24, which is my forecast. Mm. It's uh, it's not looking good Mm. in that respect. But from my point, I I actually was thinking about this today when I was uh, putting together my spinoff thing, that it did did show that I really think that I am probably a progressive and that I do think the Trump thing would be bad. Um, and then I read a, I read a, I read a, good, I read good a commentary know, in the, I mean, good in case you were guessing, but uh, wondering, but I read, I read a commentary in the, in the t- Telegraph today, which more or less said the, the woke mob has destroyed civilization as we know it. And here's how it was, it was like something from the onion or, or private eye. But you, you were talking about Kegelberger, was it? Kindleberger, yeah. So there's this the, the Thucydides trap, which is you know the small country yeah. like New Zealand gets trapped. But the Kindle, the, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, Robert. But Kindleberger trap is is when you have a superpower like the states kind of you know step yeah. back. because that got me thinking about something, and this is going to be my skateboarding dog, and I think we should close with this, which is which is I um one of my favourite things is um you know it's it's better than poetry or better than literature, as someone once said about Elmore Leonard, um and it's Doctor Zeus. And it's when Tweetle Beetles fight, it's called a Tweetle Beetle Battle Battle. And when they battle in a puddle, it's a Tweetle Beetle Puddle Battle. And when Tweetle Beetles battle with paddles in a puddle, they call it a Tweetle Beetle Puddle Battle Battle. And when 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 Beetles battle Beetles in a puddle battle battle, and the Beetle Battle Puddle is a is in a is a puddle in a bottle, they call it a Tweetle Beetle Bottle Puddle Paddle Battle Muddle. See you guys. We're all going to die. Next, see, see you guys next year. Bernard, do you want to close out? That's impressive. Um, thank you so much to, to all of you for um, participating Pleasure. in this podcast. We're still here and we'll come back next year at the, at the end of January. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry thank Christmas. you very much. Yeah. Happy holidays. Bye-bye. Have a lovely Bye. Christmas.